Live. Excellent. We are going live. Hello, everyone. Thank you for your patience. I uh, just had a little bit of difficulties getting the Zoom call set up to be streaming to YouTube. As usual, welcome to another live stream on the Data on Kubernetes community. This live stream was actually number 83, but it was so good we had to wait a little bit to get it a week later um, so that everything would be properly prepared. Uh, very happy to be here today with, with Randy, who's going to be giving us a great overview. Well, actually, taking it even a little bit further because we have talked about data ops. So curious to see what direction Randy's going to take this. Before we get started, though, just in case you haven't seen already, we will be hosting a co-located event in KubeCon. Um, the schedule will be coming out this week, uh, where today we're confirming all the speakers. So very excited about that. Thanks to all the folks who sent in a CFP. As usual, you can check us out on Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, you know the drill. Um, that being said, very nice to have you with us today. Randy, I think your camera is not on yet, um, but I'm sure it will be. Now it is. What's up, man? Hey, Great hey, to have hey. you with us today, Randy. Randy and I have something in common. We both went to the same university, which is an amazing place. What university is that, Randy? The, the only one that really matters in California, <laughs> UC Santa Barbara. Yes. Very, very happy. This is the first time I've been able to uh, share the space with a fellow gaucho. Um, so very nice to have you here. Can you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into Kubernetes, how you got into data ops, and then a little bit of what we're going to be talking about today. Well, I started out surfing at Coal Oil Point, and um, good plan. <laughs> no, 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 that's, no, that's a different. That's a different vector. Um, yeah. So um, you know, basically, I'm really all about cloud native, and I have been um, building distributed systems for a while. I, I I probably got my my real start facing challenges with large chunks of data in in music, oddly. And, uh, you know, really to rewind back to, uh, to UCSB, I was studying computer science and music, and we had, you know, VAX 11, 750s and algorithms that would take note lists and turn them into audio, and these files were gigantic. And um, it was very, very hard to move things around, um, you know, and, and so that was, that was sort of my first um, chance to face big data sets where, you know, you couldn't just, um, you know, copy the data over here willy nilly, you know, you had to sort of leave it sitting where it was because it was a really big expensive affair to do any kind of processing on it or to, to relocate it. And um, then that experience traveled into um, sort of the next generation of, of, of music technology, oddly, where um, we were recording stuff on, on hard drives. And so my, my technology, you know, kind of focused there, led me into the digital audio workstation um, realm. And curiously, throughout that, I was kind of involved in finance um, loosely with some other people building algorithms, processing big sets of data, um, looking for um, inefficiencies in markets and things like that. And that led me into um, a large um, uh, sort of transaction, um, basket transaction sort of platform with some friends that we built. And then we were dealing with huge amounts of data through market data. So you know, kind of an interesting evolution, but always facing this problem of huge sets of data, um, hard to process. And in, in the beginning, you know, having only one computer or two to work with. But then by the time, you know, I got into the, the trading side of things, we had a distributed system on our hands and we were um, handling feeds from different environments. And each of those feeds was a fire hose and, and no one computer could handle them. So we had to distribute things and the data sets ended up on multiple computers. 
Um, but again, we wouldn't dream of, you know, kind of moving that data around or trying to process it remotely. We didn't have the, the networking equipment for that. And, you know, as, as we evolve, we got to the point where we say, okay, you know, sort of at the next level, now what we can do is we can say, well, let, let's distribute this data and let's distribute the processing to the places where the data you know, is located and we'll have some big engine that will know how to bring all the data back together and give us insights in a single place. Um, and, and so that was a, a, another step forward. And then finally you get to Kubernetes and this you know, cloud native environment where so many of the problems that we had in trying to um, you know, deploy new versions of things quickly and to get things to scale you know, kind of go away because we've got this magic container technology. But the whole idea behind the container is at odds with the data because the container is ephemeral and stateless and you don't even know where it's going to run. And now you're back in that bucket where, you know, your data is over here and your, you know, your computation is over here. And so what I've seen um, as we as we move into this environment of using Kubernetes, it creates it creates a whole bunch of new challenges for people who have we're in the previous generation of solutions where the data has a home and you move the computation to the data and, and that's the way you get things to work efficiently. But, um, you know, there's a, I don't know if you're familiar with Gordon Gelder. Um, no, Gordon me. Gilder. Yeah. Gordon, Gordon Gilder. So, so I'm an old guy. Back in the 90s, there was this guy, Gordon Gilder, who was like talking about fiber optics and how it was going to change the world and everything. He's a futurist. And um, one of the things that he, he um, sort of uh, suggested is that you waste the things that are cheap in technology and you treasure the things that are expensive. And so back then, you know, we were, you know, we had a hundred, um, you know, a hundred megabit ethernet connections. We were like, yes. You know, <laughs> and when you think about the size of data people are working with, you, I mean, you, you need to process the data where it is. You can't be moving the data around. Nowadays, um, you know, we've got 100 gigabit, you know, connections and, and, and more, um, you know, and, and so all of a sudden we can start, you know, thinking about things very, very differently. We can waste the, 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 the network and treasure, um, you know, the things that are, uh, that are, you know, valuable, which is our, our, our computation clusters and things like that. And so, um, so just this watching this evolution of, you know, thinking and, and right now, I think we're really in a place somewhere between, you know, stateless microservices run really great on Kubernetes and, um, you know, big data platforms run really nice in environments where you run the computation where the data is. And we're not in either one of those places when it comes to data ops, we're somewhere in the middle. And there's a lot of, um, I, I think that the cutting edge has really made a migration to provide complete solutions, you know, all the way across the top where you can use this dynamic computation environment and still get the benefits um, of, you know, of, of the, the, the massive computational, um, you know, side from the, from the data, um, perspective, but a lot of firms, they have so much, um, you know, kind of baggage to, to drag forward that, that, you know, the, the industry at large is still making this, this transition and it's a big lift. And with that in mind, because this is something we talk about frequently, you know, like what is the major problem that you see, you know, stopper regarding running on data on Kubernetes? Is it a talent problem? It's a money problem. It's a technology problem. What do you think about that? 
I think um, I, I think to some degree, there's definitely a, a knowledge gap in um, insofar as people understanding um, how Kubernetes works and where it's different and what you need to do to make things effectively, um, you know, operate um, against the challenges that you have in in data processing types of environments. However, um, the the other big issue I think is that people often um, try to um, they, they they try to rationalize things in the Kubernetes world in a way that um, that fits maybe an older Mesos Hadoop kind of mindset, and I think that you have to you have to rethink things pretty dramatically. And I think also people underperform because they don't recognize you know they they think that um, they have to you know, sort of plan everything out and they have to, um, you know, do things that worked before like ETL and stuff like that. And I think that if you, if you really just go at it, you can, you can move um, tons of data sets into a, a, a modern data lake kind of environment that can be accessed by a Kubernetes cluster in you know in months in in less than a year um, even at a very large organization if you're willing to um to, to to bite the bullet and go there and so i think what what happens is a lot of people get hobbled by trying to do things piecemeal and you end up with lots of di li different little steps and these very disparate kinds of um you know kinds of solutions that um make it really hard to get to the to the to the finish line and that's precisely what we're talking today is so that these solutions get out in the open and aren't so isolated, like you said, piecemeal or having to sort of, you know, Jerry rake something on your own, the, you know, MacGyver engineering, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it's that we are still, like you said, in that transitional period where we, we've got one thing on the other, on one side and another on the other, but this is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So if you want to jump right into your presentation, it's probably a good, good uh, spot to start. Sure. Well, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that is, pretty uh, important about um, the way that we architecture uh, or the way that we architect clusters on the Kubernetes front for, for data ops is that the whole idea of, of Kubernetes is to make it easy for, um, for creative people to, to build solutions and to deploy them um, quickly and easily. And if your um, if your data solution is you know kind of all over the map, if your data sources have um, you know different sources and um, are are split across different networks, you're gonna have a lot of challenge. And so, one of the most important things is to um, bring all of that data together in one place, because a lot of times the 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 real synergy comes from you know, using these sets of data um, in creative ways across the, the many data sets that you've got. And so if, if things are locked up in different data stores, you know, this thing's in that database, this thing's over here in, uh, in, in this HDFS, and this thing's over here in, in, in another environment, you're going to have some big trouble. And so um, if you really want to unlock um, the, the, the latent uh, power of that data, you've got to bring it all to one place, in my view, and you need to make it accessible to the people who are, um, 
you know, looking to, you know, explore new ideas and to experiment and to build solutions. And you've got to give them a platform to do that on. And so Kubernetes is clearly, um, you know, the go forward platform for the computational piece. And what Kubernetes gives us is, you know, a, a, a neutral, highly scalable environment for running these workloads. Then the, the next challenge is, and, and when you move to the cloud, here's another problem is that while we have in Kubernetes a way to do things that's data aware, right? We can run, you can run, for example, um, solutions like HDFS in your Kubernetes cluster. And you can run data nodes, um, you know, on each of the hosts, and then your Spark, um, you know, components um, can can be the tasks can be sent to the executors that are running on the nodes that have the data that you're looking for, just like it's always been. Um, you know, so so Spark has the ability to integrate um, in in this you know kind of traditional way. But in in the cloud, if you're if you're if you're beginning to move to you know the the more cloud environments, the the scalability of the compute and the scalability of the storage, um, you know, are are these independent beasts. Um, and what we what we you know need to be able to do is we need to be able to you know have those actually operate as independent platforms and that that process then of pulling in the data sets from um, all of the different locations and dropping them into some backend object store um, or you know typical you know data lake type of solution s3 would have you and then accessing that data um, in an efficient way from the Kubernetes side of things is, is really the key. And so there are tools out there like um, stream sets that automate the, um, you know, the, 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 the extraction of data from other systems and pull them into the back end in real time so that you can operate um, all of your platforms as they've been operating, but you know, continue to bring the data sets that you need to work on from an analytic standpoint into this, you know, solidified single back end. And then, um, you know, your, your Kubernetes um, component gives um, that, that liberty on the development side, you know, the, the software supply chain convenience and all of the tooling that makes it easy to build these, um, these applications. Now, as soon as you, as soon as you um, accept that kind of distribution, you're back into, okay, now we're, we're doing lots of network transfers and you, you know, maybe take a 2x hit um, performance-wise, um, when you're when you're you know running your computations, but at the end of the day, um, it's it's wasting the thing that's cheap, right? And um, and focusing on the thing that's expensive, the talent and the analytics to that that you're you're building is the thing that you you need to treasure. And we want to build a platform that takes away all of the obstacles from them um, being able to innovate and to you know and to explore and to experiment. So. Um, you know, I, I think there's just uh, a lot of value in looking to, to move as briskly as you can to a single, um, you know, solidified data solution that's accessible to the innovation that happens on the Kubernetes side. Mm -hmm. very, very thorough answer. You may, it's interesting that you're mentioning the um, sort of dichotomy between, you know, the you know, as we've seen, like the, the big data stack, right? And, and, and comparing that and contrasting to computation side, uh, do you feel that part of maybe the, the lack of brisk movement um, towards this new paradigm is because of that there's still maybe a big data mindset where there needs to be a Kubernetes mindset? 
Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it really turns things on its ear quite a bit when you, you, you know, cause you're, you're really like changing the mantra hundred percent. It was, Hey, we've got to run the computation where the data is. And that greatly limits your flexibility from a computational standpoint to now we say, okay, look, we're, we've got a scalable solution for storage and we've got a scalable solution for computation. And we're going to bite the bullet and accept the fact that we're going to be streaming data like crazy, but this is what the systems are built for. Yeah. This is how the cloud works. It's a very different fundamental architecture. And um, have, you, have you run across Druid at all? Yes, it has come up because of, you know, as usual with all these things, there are debates, you know, is this, is this, is this solution or is it going to be that solution? So that has come up in a couple of conversations, but you can definitely take that a little bit further because some folks might not be so familiar with it. Yeah, so, so this is a perfect example of a solution, and I'm, I'm not trying to promote Druid over anything else, but I just think that the architecture of Druid um, highlights some of these points, right? Um, so... Um, imagine a situation where you need to do, um, you know, a, some some analytics processing, and um, the 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 nature of that analytics processing is such that you do experience pain if you you know are constantly streaming the data. So um, what you could do is you could stand up a Druid cluster, and you could easily do this in Kubernetes, and your Druid data nodes. Um, can you, you can ingest data into your Druid system and the, the Druid system will save segments in say S3. And so that, you know, the S3 system turns into this big backend um, persistence engine. But then from a computational standpoint, um, you're running all of your processing against these data nodes and the data nodes have um, scalability, right? If, if you've got a few data nodes and that's good enough to do your processing, then great. But if you need more, then you can literally just spin them up. So you get this dynamic behavior. And this, this is something I, maybe I didn't hit hard enough early is that when, you're, when your data is sitting there static and it's controlling your computational flexibility, it, 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 it delivers that static mantra onto your computational you know, scalability. And, and what Kubernetes is all about is elasticity from the, comp, you know, from the computational side. And so when you know, we wanna be able to get that back, well, here's this, this happy medium, right? Yes, you can scale like crazy on your Kubernetes cluster and then have your backend be whatever it is and, 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 and that's gonna be your bottleneck. Well, why not come up with a hybrid solution when it makes sense? And so as you scale out the Druid data nodes, one, let's say you've got four nodes and they have all the segments. Well, if you wanted to get to six so that you could increase your computational you know, capability by 50%, those guys can literally, um, give up their segments and the other two guys can pick them up, but they're not copying them between each other. Everything's in S3. Mm -hmm. So the new guys just, you know, pull the data out of S3, which doesn't, you know, impact your current activities. And then when those guys have the segments that they need, you can start, you know, processing there. And so you, you now have not only the elasticity, the, 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 the hyper elasticity on your compute side, um, but you have, semi-elasticity, you know, we could call it on the data side where the, the actual data nodes can grow 
they 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 copy the segments indeed from S3, but they only do it once. And then you know you've got this pool of of um, of machines that you can use to you know perform all of your processing workloads. And then at the end of the day, if you want you know after running this thing for a project that lasts three months, you could scale it away um, altogether. And yet you haven't lost any of your data, and you haven't really moved any of your data from a from a you know a, a permanent home standpoint. And and all of your systems that are you know moving data into your your lake, whether it's you know S3 or Swift or um, you know some other object store, um, are 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 untouched by this activity, right? You've got um, you've got sort of uh, a tiered approach um, to solving problems. So that that to me, you know, seeing technology like that show up um, that's that's truly cloud native, or right? that's one of the first things that that I've run across where it's not like you know, some people would call it Cassandra cloud native. Mm -hmm. You know, you can store huge amounts of data in Cassandra. There's there's no master. You can replicate the data. You can lose a node and it doesn't matter. And you can distribute it across multiple data centers and do replication that way. It's it's a really cool solution. But it was created in an era before you know the cloud technologies that we've got, where you know object storage is the place you put huge amounts of stuff and compute happens on nodes that have ephemeral storage that you can use for, you know, transitory types of activities. And so um, not saying that I don't like Cassandra, it's awesome, um, but it's really neat to see what can happen with which with more sophisticated architectures like things, uh, you know, and things like Druid, which is, you know, it's an analytics platform, so it's not going to do what Cassandra does, but it's a new way of looking at things that really, you know, leverages the cloud components and tries to create um, you know, some little piece of magic in the synergies between um, Kubernetes and the cloud infra, you know, that you've got at these two different levels. With that in mind, is, is when you're having these conversations, because, you know, maybe you can just give a little bit more background about what your company does, is you're very much in touch with, you know, end users. And so seeing sometimes, because having different conversations, sometimes end users are far more advanced than vendors will know or would like to admit or different things like that. When you're having these conversations with companies, with end users, what are the responses? What are the reactions? What are their fears? What are their sort of obstacles into getting more into this data on Kubernetes mindset? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's very insightful because at the end of the day, when it comes to their data, you know, the end users always know more than the vendors do, right? Um, and so the we're so let me let me just explain RxM. So I'm I'm a managing partner at RxM, and we um, we basically are advisors and consultants, um, and we also are um, you know focused a lot on the training. So we were involved, for example, in the creation of the certified Kubernetes administrator, application developer, and security specialist exams. Um, and we have, I, I I think you know one of the deepest, broadest sets of training for Kubernetes and, and, and generally things around that space. Um, so, you know, a lot of firms will come to us if they're looking for some, you know, cloud native training, microservices, container tech, um, Kubernetes and, and, and whatnot. And we just, we're really just focused on Kubernetes. So yeah. cloud native and the stuff around it. And so when we work with clients, um, we, we're, we're often, um, trying to enable them in many cases. So, so we're, we're not like a vendor that, 
you know, is going to do a long-term um, contract. Our goal when we work with customers is to get them up to speed and operating on their own as quickly as possible. So it's a little bit of a different model. Um, and so we often will come up with a, 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 a training program that will, in, that will be tailored to the solution that we work out with them and, um, and help their people um, get up to speed. Uh, so they need as little support as possible going forward and they have as much agility um, in, you know, in, in tackling new problems that they face down the road as possible. And so when we're, you know, when we're thinking about the data problems, um, a, a lot of times grappling with the architecture and the nature of Kubernetes and how it operates and thinking about the tooling that they're using, because many of these, these, these clients, they've invested so much in a lot of this tooling that you've got to find a bridge, you know, yeah. um from they're, they're not gonna abandon that when like you said when so yeah. much work is gone there's no way yeah exactly if if kubernetes can add value to what i have great let's talk about that but you know it, it, there's a you know i think there's this false idea that oh you know everybody's just going to switch to kubernetes and then they'll sort out their other stuff it's it's quite the opposite you know and that's um, it. we talk about this time and time again one thing is the what and how about running data on kubernetes but the other question and once again facing end users is why, why am I going to do this? Why yeah. am I going to internally have to fight battles about making changes? And so in, 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 in your situation, what are the whys that you tend to use? That, that's a good question. So, um, you know, we have, we have run a, so, so first of all, you know, Kubernetes has sort of eaten the world. Um, right. So that, that's a, that's a factor, right? You know, a lot of support, you know, they almost archived Mesos, you know, in, in the spring, right? Um, went to the attic. Um, and so, you know, if you want to be on the thing where innovation is happening, where new things are coming out and where great new projects are, are showing up and where people are spending all their time and money in the open source world contributing value that you can harvest, that's something to think about. Um, another thing that's important is, you know, um, for application software, um, packages are dead, right? That's, that's the old way of thinking. Containers are the, the mechanism of distributing software. All of the ecosystem stuff, you know, for, um, you know, for, for distributing containers and housing containers and securing containers and the software supply chain and all that, that's all, you know, baked into this container world. And so, um, you know, clearly there, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. So there's a, there's an allure to being, you know, open to and, and, and moving into this space so that you just have, you know, the support and the benefit of all the latest technology. Um, but the and, other piece, and don't, and don't wait too long to the point where your competitors are well integrated and adopted. I understand what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of like, um, you know, that's the fear side of it. Right. Um, <laughs> and that works. That works. Yeah. <laughs> that works. Yeah. And, and then there's that. So then there's the other side of it, which is, um, you know, when, when, when you see, um, so I, I always like to think about it like this. Um, if you look at object technology and you are thinking about things in the object technology world, um, having, you know, gone through the inception of that and then all the way up to now where we're like, okay, we've thrown away all of the, um, you know, the hyperbole and we've gotten down to what object technology really does well, which is allow us to, you know, modularize large software. 
well, we're not building large software so much anymore. We're building lots of small services. And so um, the idea of putting state inside a thing and then running it in a single address space, these ideas don't even, don't even fit anymore. And so I think um, when some of it is just rethinking architecture and understanding how modern applications um, need to be built to, to take advantage of the platform, because this is always this, this, um, you know, the platform moves ahead a little bit and then the architecture of applications that are really going to take advantage of it, you know, come up a little bit. And then, you know, you have this kind of an activity going on and um, there's a lot of monolithic software out there and monolithic data processing. Right. And yep. so thinking about the next generation and having um, the ability to scale the individual components and the ability to, to, to have cross-functional teams operate independently and create new things fast and this gets into data ops, right? Um, liberating a team to have, you know, how, how do you how do you do data ops? In the perfect world, you have all of your data available, and in a in a in a way that's fairly easy to consume. And then you make it so that you can just provide the analytics logic quickly and easily, and then run that at scale to get your answers as quickly as possible. Well, you know, that's, that sounds a lot like having a big data lake in your Kubernetes cluster and, um, and, and deploying applications in, in containers. And so when you start looking at all of the, you know, you bring, how do we bring the, the agile benefits to analytics teams? How do we bring, you know, the short cycle times and the easy uh, deployment and reliable deployment of software um, applications to analytics teams, you know, and, uh, you know, somebody, uh, th there was a, a really funny one that uh, somebody was going through, I was watching some YouTube thing, I can't remember exactly what it was, where, you know, everything works until somebody decided my software needed to be upgraded, right, and everything blows up, right, and so, um, right, we're decoupling th these analytics teams mm -hmm. from all of that stuff, because they're, they're in their own little containerized world, and they're running their applications out there, and do you need to worry about security and things like that? Yeah, you do, but you can, you can make that a, a cross-cutting concern, and you can handle it at a level that's independent. And so this is another one of the superpowers of Kubernetes. Um, let's say, for example, you want to really affect zero trust. Well, then you should encrypt everything on the wire, right? Oh, yeah. oh you know, holy mackerel. <laughs> How are we going to do that? Well, just use a VXLAN overlay CNI plugin that encrypts everything in the tunnel. And you're done, yeah. right? Or install a service mesh and you know have MTLS set up for between the the agents, right? So this is the kind of technology that you just can have, right? If if you want it, um, and you know it, it it addresses a lot of the laundry list of problems that are you know cross cutting concerns, and by having this this platform that gives you this flexibility, but also is, is so, uh, you know, feature rich and is becoming really, really mature. Um, the security is, is, you know, going to be up here instead of down here. And um, there's so much community focused on making it better and improving it, you know, all the time in all these vectors from performance, observability, security, you know, all those factors. These are good points. And thinking about what you've mentioned previously about training different organizations, obviously for folks that are familiar with, you know, CKA, CKD, et cetera, there is that route. However, when we're talking about, and because it's a couple of things that you mentioned there too, is that when we're talking about this issue of, you know, a, a, a DBRE or uh, someone who, it could be an SRE, when we think about the different stakeholders, you know, in a platform team that are going to be involved in these processes, 
what are what are the skill set you know what skill set do they need to have how can they acquire those things and this is one of the things where we've talked about could there possibly be in the future some kind of certification that'll be more data relevant when talking about doing stuff on uh you know running stateful workloads on kubernetes dealing with those challenges because perhaps it's not fully covered enough in ck or ckd it is true that things you know like etcd and crd are going to be covered but probably not as much as possible in in your you know experience as someone who's a trainer having to go about those challenges with an organization, a company, how would you approach that? And do you imagine that these things will be codified, let's say a year, two years from now? Mm. <laughs> these are these are really great questions and not hypothetical for me. Um, so so we, we actually <laughs> we actually have clients who are like, look, we, we really want to understand this and it's not covered in these other things, because to your point, um, you know, the CKA, you're a cluster operator. Right. And what does a cluster operator do? Well, historically, they operate a stateless ephemeral pod environment, you know, and and state is a, is a second class citizen and, and thought of after the fact quite often. And and when it is thought of, it's in many cases just, oh, we're going to take the old enterprise stuff we had get a CSI driver for it and there we're done, right? <laughs> and, and so you're not making any of the, you know, architectural or mental model changes that get you to, you know, a data opsy kind of, you know, operation from, from you know, from that side of thing, from the computational, um, you know, data processing side of things, maybe for the, 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 the lift and shift types of first efforts and stuff, that's an okay way to go. But yeah, we have, um, we actually built an entire three-day course on just state on Kubernetes. Okay. And I really think like, I mean, you look at Kubernetes 1.0, there was no, you know, it was a, you run stateless services. You, you, you want, you want a volume? How about host deer, you know, or, or, or something. Um, and, and which was, you know, that was a workaround, right? Okay. I've got HDFS. So just host deer that. And okay. Now, now it kind of works, you know, the scheduling is all crazy, but uh, at least it functions. And, and so then we got stateful sets and, you know, and, and so on. And now we're to the point where we've got features like, um, like volume populators, right? Where you can say, hey, I want to create a volume, but when you give it to me, make sure that what's in there is everything in this S3 bucket. Mm. Whoa, you know, okay. So um, there's, and, and unfortunately, you know, we're, we're still early, right? The C oh, CSI, yeah. Yeah. right? CSI went GA in 2019. Mm. And so, you know, we didn't even have really a stable storage interface for containers in, until a couple of years ago. And so there's, you know, so many of these cool things, unfortunately, are alpha features or just beta in 122, you know, or, 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 or 121 or something like that. So there's a, there's a lot out there and there's a lot to understand. And the way that, uh, you know, I think one of the, the main value adds there is in working with the clients who are trying to figure out this you know, next generation of, of data ops and how they're going to do it and how they're going to manage the, 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 the storage side of the solution. They need to understand um, what facilities Kubernetes has today and where it's going. And that means, you know, they have to go way beyond PVs, PVCs, and, you know, in storage classes, they have to understand how, you know, the, the, the CSI architecture works and, um, you know, and, and what kinds of uh, scheduling, you know, nuances are out there for like Spark, but also the built-in scheduler and, and some of these other, you know, third-party custom schedulers um, and, and things like that. And so that's, you know, we, you know, we sort of go in the weeds and spend all of our time talking just about 
um, you know, state volumes, the built-in volume types, um, and the, you know, the, the different types of CSI solutions, object storage, block storage, file storage, and how all those things, you know, can operate. And, um, and, and then, you know, just looking at also just some of the performance um, differences between using a cabinet that you have on site, using something like an S3, and then actually using the SSDs on the boxes in your cluster. Yeah, but it's, I think it's, if, if with, with just unpacking a little bit of things you mentioned there, the fact that you've been able, that there's been enough demand for a three-day course about, you know, working with state, I think that's a really healthy sign, you know, particularly in our community, because sometimes we feel like, oh, this is just a, a crazy idea. But, you know, once again, this is now, you know, uh, live stream number 83, well, actually 85, and we have 86 later today. But what I want to say is that, you know, through having more and more conversations with different folks, it doesn't just seem that these are, you know, isolated cases, but that there is something really strong to say about this, and that also that end users are seeing value. It's one thing if vendors saying, hey, I got a great idea. But what I always say is that if no one's willing to pay for this, what value is it really providing? And that's also where, too, is the business value that's behind that. I feel that's something that I'm looking forward to having more conversations about in our community. And uh, all, because if, you know, if you're sitting down with a customer and once again, explain all these different things, all different stakeholders are going to be involved. The technological issues, because also we see with Kubernetes, are we going to shoehorn existing or legacy technologies? Or are we going to start with the more Kubernetes native ones? How deep do you want to get involved in the cloud native ecosystem? It would be interesting if you could talk about that as well. When you're interacting with customers, you know, where the conversation is about business value. And I always ask about this, the people that you're having conversations with, is it only technical stakeholders or is the CFO also getting involved? How does that go? And whether it's with data on Kubernetes technologies, that's one thing, but I'm also just curious about how you introduce them perhaps to the cloud native uh, landscape and ecosystem. How do those things work in your case? Right. So, uh, so I'm a cloud native ambassador. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I drank the Kool-Aid, so um, you're going to get a specific viewpoint for me, but um, I'm also an Apache uh, committer and uh, I'm on the PMC for thrift and. Oh, wow. This is like an East coast, West coast rapper. Then this is very exactly, exactly right. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, you know, it's kind of interesting, all, all, all the data stuff has traditionally, you know, kind of been in the, 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 the streaming, you got your, I, I, I just saw the, the recent uh, Apache uh, annual report and, you know, Kafka is at the top of a lot of the lists for activity and things like that. Um, Apache Thrift made the top 20 for the first time in, in a while for, for some things, which I thought was really cool. But um, anyway, you know, you've, you've got data streaming solutions, RocketMQ, Kafka, and, and, and so on. And then you've got, you know, the flinks and, you know, uh, stuff like that. And then you've got, you know, of course, your traditional, you know, Cassandras and, um, and Druids and, and, mm. and things of that nature. And then um, in the, on, on the cloud native side of things, um, you know, you've got this, this real um, synergy and focus around Kubernetes, tons of stuff happening in observability, but also storage, right? And um, so we have this, the, the mechanical storage bits um, kind of going on in the C cloud native side, you know, in the CNCF at least umbrella. And then we have the, the projects that sit on top of all that storage stuff kind of happening in the Apache side of things. I think that's sort of curious. Um, uh, and you know, it's another, there's a, here's another really interesting little uh, anecdote. Um, I looked at one time at um, the, the programming languages on the Apache front, and it's somewhere in the two thirds Java, mm -hmm. and then one third other stuff. 
And then I looked on the CNCF side, and of course, you know the answer there. It's kind of two thirds go, and go, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and a third other stuff. And so that's kind of an interesting, and, and I, I don't underplay that. Um, you know, go is a different way about thinking of things, and it is, you know, it's cloud native. Java um, is this amazing ecosystem of, of projects and frameworks and things that um, has a, developed over time. But at the end of the day, not cloud native. Historically, it was invented before cloud native existed, right? Yeah. And so, you know, nobody ever thought you'd be running 17 JVMs on the same computer. But we do that all day long in, you know, in a, in a cloud native cluster. So it's just some interesting, you know, um, differences. And I think that there's convergence, you know, that can happen there. Um, and there, there's live activity in, in, in that convergence. But, but to your question, um, I feel like th there's, there's definitely a need for, um, you know, people to have a deeper experience around um, just data everything on Kubernetes. And uh, I think there's That's room. Good. And how can they get that experience? What's the first step that they should take if they want to get that? Because I think a well, lot of people look in, they're like, this is overwhelming. This is way too much. It's going to take years. I'll hire somebody to deal with it or I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Yeah, you, you you kind of brought it up with the certifications and mm -hmm. you know like the the certified um, security specialist is um, is something that requires the CKA first, and I could easily imagine um, a certified data engineer or something right specialization would, yeah right that would come after the CKA as well, and um, so now all of a sudden you've got some some formalization, right? This is the curriculum. These are the things that we sort of expect people to know and the community chimes in, right? And, and you also were kind of um, talking about like where's value coming from. And, and I think one of the ways that you can see that is the activity. Um, and when you look at the activity around storage in Kubernetes, um, the, you know, the, the commits, the evolution of new features and the focus in, in you know, like, this podcast and all of the conferences have us at least one, you know, um, you know, pre-conference day, you know, dedicated to this kind of stuff and, and the number of sessions that are going on and just the activity in, 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 you know, out there, people are trying to solve these problems. These are active problems and there's, and, and also it's, it's just like a CICD pipeline, right? Have you ever seen two enterprises with the same software supply chain, you know, no, right? I mean, they all, they're always different. Some, they all have their own different sauce or something, unless they just bought a solution from a vendor. They're doing something that works for them that involves specific projects and ways that they integrate, you know, interact together. Their pipeline for, for one piece of software might be different from that for another. And that flexibility is power, but you need to get over the complexity of, of getting it in place. And this is why like vendors who have a, a, a really deep, understanding of the technologies and how to solve those problems quickly can often add a lot of value because they can, they can move you fast to a solution so that you now don't care about this stuff and you just use it. Right. And you've built something that works for you, but you're going to, you know, consume it. And it's the same thing on the data side, I think. And, you know, if we, if we, if we took sort of the same sorts of steps we're taking with security and observability and things like that on the, the data front, I think we'll come out to a good place where we, we realize that it's absolutely critical. Um, we realize that um, there's a dearth of understanding because um, it is fairly complicated, but 
you know, com the necessary complexity is not evil. And then we, we tackle that by creating, you know, um, you know, a known set of knowledge that people should have as a base to work from, build a, you know, a, a, a certification around that perhaps in the community on the cloud native side. And then, um, you know, other, you know, us and other training vendors offering courses around this stuff and having um, firms as they're, as they're moving this direction, looking at these things as resources to, um, you know, I, I always feel like you can lead your business with training. Now, I, my company does a lot of training, so take that with a grain of salt, right? But, or not. But I, yeah. yeah, or not. I'm an honest believer in it because yeah. if, if, you, if, you, if you tell an engineer to do something, they're going to do it the way they know how to do it. And that's the way they've been doing it. If you as a CTO or, or a CFO um, or a CIO want to take your business in a new direction, you want to get cost efficiencies if you're the CFO, you want to fully utilize your infrastructure if you're a CIO, if you're a CTO, you want to um, innovate faster or, or whatever your role is, and, and you show people the way. If you, if, you, if you show an engineer a really cool bunch of technology and, and give them those tools, they'll use them. They'll know when to use them. And engineers make hundreds of decisions every day that they make independently of everything else. And it's based on their knowledge, their experience, the things they've been exposed to. And also they are risk averse, right? No engineer wants to be the person who releases the next big bug or problem or thing that has an architecture that keeps their company from being able to move forward. And so if you show them how to do this right and you give them a chance to experiment with these things in a lab environment and that sort of thing, then they can go back and they look, I learned all this new stuff and I really get it now and I can apply this actively to what I'm doing. And so that's my that's my belief in 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 the in the training side of it and you know that that also ties back to your leadership we we speak to people at every level and a lot of times the bigger the project the larger the number gets on any kind of activity that's going to happen internally and externally you move up that chain pretty quick right because as soon as you start talking you know, millions of dollars, everybody in the C-suite is aware of what's going on. They want to understand the justification. They want to, you know, know that there's a robust solution that is, you know, got a high probability of success and it's going to give them the ROI that they're looking for. And you have to be able to speak to that. And, and speak their language. Cause I think that's another uh, additional challenge is obviously the numbers are there. Like you said, when it's reaching those, those levels, yeah, those stakeholders are going to get involved in the conversation, but how can the conversation be driven in such a way that's in practical English. That's once again, not overwhelming with too much jargon and terminology, but still making them feel like they're really being incorporated in the process. And it's not like, well, the CTO really knows what's going on here. The other ones will just get a short explanation. Then, you know, we'll move forward. I think that's I think that's a challenge, and obviously that's a challenge that you're very much accustomed to having because it's not just talking to the CTO. And we also ask these questions too: Is data on Kubernetes going to be a change that's going to be happening from top down? Will it be happening from bottom up? You know, we see with other technologies if it's you know, and we always talk about these developers. Developers, who, who are these developers that are out there? You know, they're only I think it was I think I've heard there are between you know like 27 and 40 million developers in the world. But when everybody talks about them, it seems like they know exactly who they are. They're their neighbors and their friends and the people who live down the street. But I think in the same way with data on Kubernetes is thinking, who are the, you know, who are going to be the drivers of change here? In your opinion, does it need to be, as a community, should we be trying to focus more efforts on C-suite um, level folks or focusing more on DB? We've, we've talked about this many times. 
you know, the transition from DBA to SRE, data engineers, obviously you want to kind of be able to touch on a little bit of everything, but in terms of seeing change happen as someone who's very much on the ground and having direct contact with customers, where do you see those changes happening? And as a community, what lessons should we keep in mind in order to drive those things more? Because one of the things that we say frequently is we're trying to have conversations that will be shaping the next 10 years of data. So what, what can we do, Randy? Yeah, ooh, that's a loaded one. Um, well, number one, I think that um, it, it might be a mistake to see all organizations as the same. I see okay. some, some C-suite folks, um, and it kind of depends on the business too and what their business focus is. Like if you have a technology company, then you can speak a lot more tech to even the CEO because that's their business. And ex- you know, the chief executive should understand their business, right? Um, they don't always, but they should. And um, so that's one thing. But then you get into other businesses where it's uh, healthcare or finance or something, and they understand all that. And the technology is a little bit more opaque. So you sort of have to know who you're talking to if you're if you're communicating, um, you know, business value um, at, in the in the finance C-suite, and you're communicating a little bit more bias towards the technology to a technology company. I think you know those are some things that you you, you want to think about. And I also think that it has to be organic. I don't think you know that. Um, that is it just selling it at one level, you know, you, yeah. is always going to work. You, you know, there are, there are some leadership teams that will say we're doing this and then they marshal some big effort and, you know, drive the company forward. But that's usually, um, you, you know, the result of some event, you know, <laughs> that, that took place, something pretty important in like a merger or new leadership or something. And so, um, usually it's a lot more organic. It's a lot more evolutionary. And I, and I think, you know, um, that, that, that the work that, you know, podcasts like this are doing where you're communicating, you know, the, the value proposition at lots of different levels, talking about the people on the ground, the, you know, the, the thought leaders in the middle, you know, reaches, and then all the way up to the top, you you have to reach everybody. Um, you know, progressively and incrementally, you know. Completely agree. Because like you said, one thing is having a three-day course about, you know, working with stateful workloads and things of that nature. Another thing is if you've got three minutes to tell a CEO who's about to take a flight, this is what, you know, how do I condense this? And I think uh, this is a work in progress. You know, like if, if I yeah. had that, you know, playbook, I'd, I'd already be using it. But I think that's that's what we, we, we learn with conversation after conversation. Um, and it's and, molten know, too, right? Yes, very much so. Very much so. And it's, and as, because, you know, because Kubernetes is such a vibrant, dynamic environment, staying up, uh, you know, on top of that, and, and also, once again, going back to the CNCF landscape, it's, and, and I say this as well, because Chris Andersek said it himself, he's like, I don't know about all the projects, like, how could I possibly know about all of them? Like, there's no way, right. like, you can't, and so you do it, you do the best you can. You and if he doesn't know about all of them, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no great so, answer. Yeah. Free best for all the ambassadors, <laughs> like, thank God. Um, <laughs> But I think, I think with that in mind, in your case, how do you stay up to date on all the different things that are going on, particularly once again, as someone who's customer facing, what are some habits or resources that you tend to use um, that help you stay up to date? Uh, so, and I don't know if this is available to the rest of the world, but for us, um, our whole business is about trying to make sure that we are aware of as much as we can be so that we can bring that value to our clients. So we have the wonderful benefit of networking with a bunch of fantastic customers. 
And so all of our customers have their own challenges and experiences and, and thoughts about this stuff. And then we work with them as partners. And so we absorb a lot of, you know, knowledge and experience that way. But we're also really, really big believers in the CNCF and its mission. Um, you know, the CNCF works super hard to try to solve problems for the end users and for the community and, um, you know, not be kingmakers, but also filter out the noise so that people can focus on things that could actually work. And then this, you know, this, this evolution of, 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 of standards. And there's a lot of white papers that, you know, come out of these working groups and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, we're involved in some of that. Like we've got, uh, generally we have somebody on the release team for Kubernetes just so that we, you know, we're, we're giving back a, but also, you know, finding out constantly what's coming up and what the latest stuff is and what kind of is in flight and things like that. Um, and we have people that sit on all of the, um, the tags, um, as they're known nowadays. Yep. Um, so, you know, we're, we're sort of basically flies on the wall most of the time, just absorbing the discussions and, and we all share that. So we use, you know, Slack and other means to make sure that that any any time we see some movement in a certain space, it looks like there's something interesting. That information flows out to all of the consultants internally and instructors. And then every once in a while, we'll do some projects and, and customers drive our our focus a lot. Right. Some a client may say, hey, we want a class on this and we'll say, OK, well, that doesn't exist. But these are the things that we would need to research and put together to, to really do a good job on this. And then we go out and do it. And so some of it's, you know, just documenting things that have never been documented or putting things together in a way that they've never been put together and experimenting on it. And, um, you know, that's, that's a lot of, um, a lot of our daily, you know, activity. But I think it's a brilliant strategy. And, and also for, for a lot of companies that are out there and aren't sure how to start tackling this stuff. And maybe the idea for some people in management is like, I'm going to send my employees to volunteer in an open source project not knowing really what the exact return is going to be. Yes, you should. It's a really yes. good idea. Just yesterday when we Absolutely. had our live stream, which is about backup and restore, we were talking and, and uh, Solomon's a very experienced speaker and also does, does a lot of training and things like that. And he was saying, we were talking about Kubernetes is, you know, it's something that they say about sports, you know, it's like 90% mental and 10% physical. Kubernetes, although it, it, there are very heavy technical challenges, I don't know if I want to, you know, equate it to 90-10, but the people aspect of it and the community aspect of it, if you're not seeing that or having that as an integral part of your strategy, I think you're making a big mistake. Because like yeah. you said, that's where you come across the trends. That's where you see where the action is, the difficulties that are happening. And also in the case of the CNCF, doing a very good job of including end users. It's also seeing what they're talking about and realizing this is what's actually providing value. We could have a wonderful open source project with really cool people and things like that. But at the end of the day, if it's not adding value, and this is also why the CNCF is now adding even, you know, a, a business value group um, as a SIG so that folks can get involved and just specifically address those questions. I think that gives you a much more holistic view rather than sitting kind of in a technical cave and thinking, oh, we've got this brilliant idea, but not really being close to the pulse about what's going on. So yeah. I think it's a very good strategy. Good. We're almost out of time. Randy, is there anything else that we need to know that we haven't heard yet? Perhaps any special things going on in your company? Anything on the horizon? Well, um, the only thing I would I would say is that uh, I hope that um, folks um, show up for for QCon virtually or in person and uh, stop by and say hi. That's that's pretty easy, and I will definitely do that. Well, it's at least <laughs> easy for me. 
I'll encourage other folks to do the same thing. Um, just before we finish, though, we have a tradition where while we were speaking, we have a, uh, I got it, sorry. We have a wonderful graphic recorder who's been creating a visual depiction of the stuff that we were talking about. So let me know when you can see my screen. I can see it. Very, very good. And we even got a little bit of UCSB <laughs> in there. I had to inform Alcala right now. I was like, you've got to get something about UCSB in there. Um, so he did. But anyway, we like I said, this is you know live stream number 83 or 85 or whatever we're going to call it. We've had a lot of conversations. This is, uh, in terms of fireside chats, really solid. Definitely want to have you back. Uh, really liked your insights and put a lot of these things in perspective to understand as much as we want these things to be happening you know, right now, Rome wasn't built in a day. What are the actions that we can be taking to make these conversations easier, to make customers more relaxed, um, to make practitioners more relaxed too? Because if a lot of people just come in into it with a understandably stateless mentality for everything, uh, then these are the things that we're trying to show where the value can be added by running safer workloads on Kubernetes. Once again, going back to those whys, you know, why am I gonna be doing this? And also anticipating the questions from a customer of the business value and perhaps the internal battles that will have to be fought, whatever kind of training might be necessary to get staff up to speed. These are all very, very good questions. So Randy, I thank you very much. It's no surprise that someone from my alma mater gave such a wonderful talk. Um, <laughs> I'm not surprised at all there. Uh, anyway, thank you very much for your time and we'll be seeing you at KubeCon. It's been my pleasure and look forward to it. Take care. Have a